to the Lord. Lord God, we come to you, the one to whom we owe our very next breath, our very next heartbeat. You are the one who gives and the one who takes away. And Lord, without your sustaining power in our life, we would not be. Lord, first of all, we just want to recognize that, that just life itself, physical life itself, is a gift from you. But Lord, beyond that, You've made provision for a spiritual life eternal. And Lord, help us to, each and every one of us, to realize this very day, because of your great gift of salvation, a gift that all of it comes from you. None of it comes from us. All of it comes from you. And Lord, all we can do is drop to our knees and say, Thank you, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to worship you in spirit and in truth today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, if y'all would uh, grab a little blue card here, it says uh, connection card. And so if you're uh, worshiping with us, maybe for the first or second time, and you haven't told us who you are yet, shame on you. Um, no, we, we, would we would love to know who you are because it's important that you're worshiping with us. Today is an important day. You're not here by mistake. You're here by God's divine providence, and, um, and, and we want to minister to you, and we want to uh, help you understand what we're all about, what God is all about. And so please fill that out so that we can have a record of your attendance and, and get any information to you about the church or about a relationship with Jesus or anything you want to know about. And then the rest of us have prayer, a prayer card there. You can fill that out and uh, put that in the offering plate. All right, so today... Uh, let's read together from Isaiah 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. 
And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And we're going to emphasize your sin atoned for. Atoned. Atonement. Remember that word today because that's what we're going to be honing in on. Um, atonement. Let's sing together.
Let's sing that again. God, in this time of uh, giving, of tithes and offerings, Lord, help us to be faithful. Thank you for a church that loves you enough to give. Uh, last, last year was uh, such a blessing. Uh, all, all the giving, all the needs that were met, uh, not just here in this church, but giving around the world that went, went out to, to the world to spread the gospel. Lord, we just thank you, and, and may we uh, just do that again even better this year. Uh, thank you for blessing us, and thank you for the ability uh, to give back to you. Uh, you always give us the ability to give back to you, Lord, and we thank you. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
The thing that I'll never fathom about the Lord is he gave his faithfulness, his salvation, his compassion to me. And I hope you can say the same thing. And we didn't deserve it at all. While we were yet sinners. Amen. This painting from uh, Stephen Sawyer reminds me of the second verse of a song we're about to sing. The perspective is Jesus' cross. You can see his feet there. We're, we're standing behind the cross looking not at Jesus but at the people. And, of course, they're contemporary characters. Well, what do you notice about that? They've, they've got the mallets. They were the ones who drove the nails in. And all of a sudden they realize, what have I done? Just like you and I have to come to a point where we say, in our lost condition, we would have done the same thing. We would not have been the crowd saying, oh my, this is a mistake, stop it. We would have been the crowd saying, crucify him. And we know this of ourselves, don't we? And with that in mind, let's sing how deep the Father's love. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that he should give his only Son to make a wretch's
as that continues to be played. Let's just bow our heads and thank God for the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. this I know with all my heart, but this I know with all my heart, His wounds have paid my All right, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and let's look together to Hebrews chapter 2. We'll read verses 17 and 18. We are carrying the theme of our merciful and faithful high priest. If you remember, uh, our outline was he must become like the children so that he could become, in order to become, a faithful and merciful high priest. And then second, to atone for the sins of the people. And tonight, I hope you will come back as we will talk about he is fully able to help us in our temptations. Anybody think that you're going to go into 2024 without temptation? Therefore, you should come back tonight. Right, Because he is able to help us in tribulation, trials, testing, temptation. So we're going to look at that tonight. Uh, Periodically throughout the the series of Hebrews, I will preach some on Sunday nights as we go through Hebrews. So keep that in mind. You can always catch up uh, online if you're not able to be here. But I hope you will. Chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Let that sink in into your mind. He's building on verse 14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. And then in verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. And why did he become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God? Why was he made like the children? Here we are. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now imagine that you are in a burning building. And the alarms are going off. And they are deafening. Also, the overhead sprinklers are going full blast. And so as the alarms are blasting and the sprinklers are dumping gallons of water out, you are unaware that the building is on fire. 
you're standing there and you're wondering what's going on and suddenly a fireman with an oxygen mask and an axe comes chopping through the door and he comes over and he grasps you by your arm and he takes you safely out of the building. Yet you are still oblivious to the fact that the building was burning down. And so once you're safe outside, you could say something like this. Mr. Fireman, thank you so much for escorting me out of this building. The alarms were giving me a headache. And my hair is soaked. For some of you women, you know exactly what that would be, right? Thank you for escorting me out of this building. If that is the extent of your gratitude or the extent of why you are thankful at that moment, then you would have missed the critical part of the rescue. Is there genuine appreciation with that kind of comment? Sure there is. No one likes a headache. No one likes for their hair to be soaked. What one needs, however, is to have a full appreciation of the danger. So in order for you to understand the magnitude of the rescue, you need to understand that you are on the verge of a very fiery death. You are not rescued from the noisy alarm or the soaking sprinklers. You are rescued from a fiery death. I think we often fail to appreciate the full understanding of Christ's priestly work because we fail to apprehend. We don't have a full apprehension of what he actually accomplished. And we don't think about the danger that we were in. Why? Because the danger doesn't quite fit into our 21st century grid, does it? We like to think about the fact that Jesus did a great moral thing by dying on the cross. We like to think, well, that's an example for others to lay down their lives for people because he laid down his life for us. We, we think about all these things that are in our understanding of Christ's work on the cross and all know up front that there are so many dimensions. It's like holding a diamond in your hand and moving it around and the refraction of light when you consider the death of Christ on the cross, it's multifaceted. But I think if we minimize the danger, then we minimize propitiation. If we minimize what he actually was doing suspended between heaven and earth, then you rip the whole soul out of the gospel. So as you enter 2024, there is not a more important word for you than propitiation. When you sing a song like, how deep the Father's love for us, the light ought to turn on of the magnitude of the sinfulness that God, or the magnitude of your sin and the glory of gospel forgiveness and what Jesus truly accomplished on the cross. So what is the danger? The danger is the just, condemning, holy wrath of God. That's the danger. The danger is that God would not save us from himself. That is the danger. The holy, just wrath of God that, leads us, that leaves us in condemnation. So the rescue is what we call propitiation. Do you see that word in the text? Um, a lady in our church stuck her head in my office this week, and she said based on the Lord's Supper service we had that night, she, 
talked about the glory of hearing propitiation. And she said, I remember trying to teach children in Sunday school that word propitiation. <laughs> you ever tried that as an adult? Uh, to teach a child the word propitiation, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That's the theme of the text that began earlier. Christ was made like us in every respect, fully human, yet 415, let your eyes pass over to the same side of the page on my, in my scripture. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet... Without sin. So he was made a merciful and faithful high priest. Note that in the service of God. And when he says that, it opens up for us the entire Old Testament scripture. The priestly service. That's what he's speaking of. He became a high priest in order to fulfill a priestly service. And that priestly service was ultimately to make propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that theme, what does that word propitiation entail? Uh, allow me to highlight four principles that undergird it from the Old Testament scriptures. You knew I would go there, right? Because we have to. It's a necessity that you have a familiarity with the Old Testament if you're going to understand the book of Hebrews. I would say to you, that you have to understand the, whole, the Old Testament if you're going to understand any part of the New Testament. So, let, let, me, let me walk you through this so you will understand what propitiation means. So that at the end of this sermon, we gain an, a total, we apprehend what it really means for Christ to make propitiation for our sins. The first is just the word itself in the Old Testament, kafar. That's the word atonement. Perhaps you've heard of yom. Kippur, right? Day of atonement. But this is where the word comes from. Uh, the first time it's mentioned, or one of the first times, is found in Leviticus. And you just stay there. I'm going to have you turn a few times for sure. But in Leviticus chapter 4, notice this. And all its fat he shall remove as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings... And the priest shall burn it on the altar on top of the Lord's food offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed. And he shall be forgiven. So there is that word atonement. It's referring to a priestly function. A sacrifice is made. Here the sinner brings the sacrifice to the priest. The priest makes the sacrifice by slaying it putting it on the altar of burnt offering. When the priest does this, what is he doing? He's making atonement. And that word kafar means a covering. He's making a covering for sin. As a result of the covering for sin, the sinner is forgiven. In Leviticus 16, 29 through 30, it's going to give us the instructions for the Day of Atonement. I'll come back to that. But what undergirds the concept, the word, atonement, kafar, it's important for you to think about this, is a covering for sin. An atonement is made. So we say the phrase, the sin is atoned for. Okay? That's the first thing under undergirding this word, this act of what Christ is doing. The first thing that undergirds that in the Old Testament is the meaning of the word kafar, which means covering. Second, 
The principle is that God's anger over sin is presupposed in the concept or act of atonement being made. In other words, the wrath of God is against sin. And sin provokes the wrath of God. Atonement, therefore, must be made in order for the wrath of God to be turned away. This was all over the ritualistic worship and fact of worship for an Israelite. What is presupposed in God's anger, what's presupposed in propitiation is God's anger because of sin. Uh, I told you I'd have you turn. Take your copy of God's Word and turn over to Exodus chapter 32. And what do we have in Exodus 32? Moses ascends the mountain. The glory of the Lord comes. The people can't go up. Moses is up. God gives the law. And when Moses is on the mount, what happens? Aaron is down there with the people. And the people say, hey, Moses is gone. Uh, He's not coming back down. As a matter of fact, uh, let's give credence to someone else that brought us out of the land of Egypt. And not Moses or the Lord. And we know what happens There's a sin that takes place. And down on beneath the mountain, what is happening? When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. And they say, hey, why don't you just make us some kind of idol? And what do they do? uh, Aaron, sinning against the Lord, says, bring me your earrings and your jewelry and everything that you have that is gold. And they take it, they put it in the fire. And the text says, and, and, and Aaron received the gold from their hand and fashioned it in with a graving tool and made a golden calf. You ever notice verse 24 when he's saying this to Moses? So I said to the people, let any of you that have gold take it off. So they gave it to me and I threw it into the fire and out came a calf. <laughs> Lying rascal. He actually fashioned it into the to the golden calf, but he says, wow, we just threw all the gold in there, poof, golden calf sprung forth, right? But here's what I want you to think about, with the holiness of God and all of his almightiness coming down on that mountain, and here the people of God are sinning against the Lord, but notice verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you've sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. The wrath of God had come out against the people. You say, well, how do you know this? Well, just back up. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They've turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made a, uh, for themselves a golden calf to worship it. Now, therefore, let me alone, verse 10, that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation out of you. Do you see it? There's a presupposed understanding that propitiation necessitates the wrath of God being turned away. Why? Because the wrath of God is against our sin and sinners, period. There's another text of scripture in Numbers chapter 25. Just to help you see. Multiple places, and there are more of these. But in Numbers 25, what's going on? Well, if you remember the backdrop in chapter 23, is that Balaam, 
an insane prophet was hired to curse Israel. God would not permit that. And what you find later is that Balaam tells Balak that if you really want to get to the Israelites, you won't be able to do that by getting, bringing about a curse of God. God will not curse his people, but he is just and righteous. Here's an insane prophet who really understands that God is just and righteous. But if you lead the people of Israel into sin, you will provoke God's anger and he will therefore judge his people. Folks, that's exactly what happens. And in chapter 25, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. And this was the Midianite women who went down to the Israelites and they lusted after them, committed sexual relations. So Israel yoked himself to Baal Peor and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them. And you say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. I'm so far, so glad that Jesus moved the indignation of God away. Now, folks, the same God that is a wrathful God is also the loving God. And so here's the understanding that sin provokes the wrath of God. Verse 6, and behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent meeting. And they're seeking to per perform a sexual act with Midianite women outside the confines of the law of God. And what happens? And the Lord said to Moses, verse 10, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel, that he was jealous with my jealousy among them, so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace, and it shall be to him, to his descendants, after him the covenant of perpetual priesthood, because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. Why? Because Phineas went in and ran a sword through both of them, performing the sexual act, man and woman, and killed both of them. And God says, you've turned away my wrath. You see the picture? God is justly anger, angry over sin. And therefore, sin must be atoned for in order for God to forgive. That's the second thing. First thing, it's a covering. Second thing is it presupposes that God's wrath is against sin. Y'all right? You, you got it? Thirdly. There's the Old Testament principle of this. The effect of the atonement is the removal of wrath, the cleansing from sin, and the forgiveness of sins. And this is called propitiation. In the act of covering the sin, the sin is taken away. And because the sin is taken away, there is forgiveness based on the covering atonement. So we see atonement is made and sins are forgiven. God then extends mercy and favor to those whom atonement is made. So we have the word kafar, our covering. We have God's anger and wrath towards sin. It's presupposed. And then we have the effect of the atonement, which is the removal of God's wrath and the forgiveness of our sins. And here's the fourth principle. It is the priest who were the ones who offered the atoning sacrifice. All of this is so important for us to get in our minds. It's the priest who were the ones who offered the atoning sacrifice. So if you would have been an ancient Israelite and you realized that you had sinned, the last thing that you would have done was to try to make atonement for your own sin. 
you knew that was an impossibility. You had to have a mediator in order for that to take place. You had to have a priest between you and God. So this is pictured for us beautifully where? In Leviticus chapter 16. And it's called Yom Kippur. It is the day of atonement. Do you remember what happens? The people bring to the priest not one but two goats. Y'all know the story, right? And he takes the first goat and he kills that goat as a sin offering. The blood would be shed and its blood would cover the mercy seat. This was the one day of the year when the priest could enter in to the Holy of Holies. If you remember, he could enter in at certain times to the holy place. Actually, he could do that every day, but there was a certain part of the tabernacle or temple, the Holy of Holies, and he could only go in there one time a year. And what was in front of him? A piece of furniture called the Ark of the... Did y'all watch Indiana Jones? All right. (laughs) Or have you read your Bible? Right? There's the Ark of the Covenant, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and what do you have? The cherubim on either side, hovered over that mercy seat, peering down into the mercy seat, looking down at what's inside of the Ark. The commands of God. The commands of God that have been placed there, there inside of that Ark. So the high priest would take the first goat. He would kill it as a sin offering. He would shed its blood, and then he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbol, not only of God's presence, but also the holiness of God. This is who I am. I'm just, I'm holy, this is my law. So the two tablets in the Ark contained the law, symbolized that God was holy and just, and had given this law. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, covering, the high priest would approach the Ark, He would realize that the people had transgressed the law. They were transgressors. God was provoked to anger. And those two cherubim, as it were, peering through that mercy seat, down into the law, reminded the Israelites that there is a God in Israel who is holy. There is a God who sees our sins. And you've broken the law of God. And therefore atonement must be made. Blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat. The sins of the law which were broken were covered. The high priest would then... Go and place his hands on the head of the other goat. And he would confess the sins of the people. And he would send that goat out into the wilderness, symbolizing that the sins of the people had been carried away. Hallelujah. The covering of the mercy seat is propitiation. The sending away of the sins on the scapegoat is expiation. Covering. Guilt is removed. So I want you to understand that this principle of propitiation is interwoven throughout the entire Old Testament economy. And that provides the backdrop for the New Testament understanding of the word propitiation. The word here in Hebrews 2, 17 is to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That verb is only used one more time in the entire New Testament. Now, the noun form is used, but, but the verb form is used only one other time. Do you remember the story? Jesus, in Luke 18, says, there were two men that came into the temple to pray. Y'all already with me? Do you already know where I am? One was a who? Yes. He, here's a guy who comes in that's a Pharisee, and the other is a publican, and 
The Bible says, as Jesus is giving this story, he says that the Pharisee lifts up his eyes into heaven and says to himself, O Lord, I thank you that I am not like other men. I tithe of everything I get. And if you were a Baptist, you would say, I go to church three times a week. I serve in VBS. And above all this, I'm so thankful that I'm not like this publican. Y'all remember the story? And then Jesus tells us that the sinner, the publican, tax collector, without even lifting up his eyes, he beats himself on his breast and says, here it is, God be propitious to me, the sinner. Now, the English translation in Luke 18 will say, be merciful to me, a sinner. But I'm telling you, that does not capture the force of the word in the Greek. What the publican is saying is, God, have your wrath turned away from my sin. Be propitious to me. Another word that is used in the New Testament is used twice. In 1 John, you know this, don't you? 1 John 2, 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not ours only, but for the sins of the world. And then we have 1 John 4.10. And let me share that one with you because it's, it's a giant one for sure. Both of them are. But chapter 4, verse 10. Listen to the word of the Lord. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then the third use of the word is in a different form and is found in the book of Romans. And listen to the word of the Lord, verse 24 of Romans 3. And we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen to this, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Now think about that. Turning away the wrath of God, propitiate. propitiate. Here's the means. God loved us in noun form and put and gave us propitiation, not for our sins, but for the whole world. And then he adds this, that, that the Lord God has put him forward as a propitiation for our sins. All right? There's one more, and it's found in the book of Hebrews. And guess where it is? Chapter 9. Notice the word of the Lord. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the Most Holy Place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold. There's your word, covered. So not only do you have wrath being turned away, God putting forth Jesus as propitiation, you have the actual place where propitiation is made. Now, Hebrews is going to tell you it happened in the heavenly places. It didn't happen on this ark he's speaking of here, Ark of the Covenant. It actually took place in glory where he shed his blood for us. And that's awesome. I can't preach all that today. But what I want you to understand is that there's Christ becoming like us in every respect apart from sin in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the things of God in order to make propitiation and also aid his people in temptation. Are you ready for this? This is the glorious news of the gospel. Jesus Christ, our high priest, comes into this world 
to make propitiation for our sins. The purpose of the incarnation, the purpose of, of the Son of God leaving heaven and coming to this earth was that the Son would become a priest. The purpose of the Son becoming a priest is that he would make atonement, propitiation for our sins. So as a high priest, what does that mean for you today? Jesus himself is the offerer. He's the one who's making the offering so that, your, that God's wrath is turned away, your guilt is covered, your sins are removed. Y'all see it. He's the one who is the offerer. But Christ Jesus, our high priest, is also the offering. This is the glory of Hebrews. This is the linchpin that the entire book is going to hinge upon. Because from here on out, we're going to see that he was more faithful than Moses. We're going to see that he was a, a greater king than Melchizedek. And all of this is fleshed out on the basis of the fact that not only was Jesus the offerer of the sacrifice, but he himself is the offering. He himself is the offering. When he comes to the cross, he doesn't bring a goat. Let me start back over. When he makes atonement, he doesn't have to make atonement for his own sin. But every high priest before him did. Why? Because they're good for nothing, rotten sinners like us. And every one of them had to make atonement for their own sin, lest they die inside of the Holy of Holies. Okay? He didn't bring a goat with him to the cross. When he goes to the cross, he's not leading a bull. When he goes to the cross, he's not carrying a lamb on his shoulders. As our great high priest, he is the offerer, but he's also going to be the offering. He will offer himself, the spotless, sinless Lamb of God in our place. This is what happens when Jesus Christ makes propitiation for our sins. He offers up the sacrifice as the high priest, yet he himself is the sacrifice on our behalf. One thing is very clear when we read the Bible. There are multiple dimensions to the cross of Christ and his death. Many things were accomplished on your behalf when Jesus died on the cross. But when we think of Calvary, and all that multifaceted understanding, if we're just turning it around in our hands like a diamond. And every time you turn it around, there's a different dimension. And he, he accomplished a host of things on your behalf. But if you miss this particular understanding of the cross, you've missed the entire soul and heart of what Jesus was doing on the cross of Calvary. The heart and soul of what, what it means the heart and soul of the gospel is that Jesus Christ is making propitiation for the sins of the people. Don't miss it, folks, and don't minimize it. Does he provide a glorious example for laying down your lives for others and your friends? Sure he does. However, the cross is way more than a moral example. Does, is the cross an exposition of God's hatred toward evil and sin? And the answer is yes. But the cross is way more than God's moral government. Does Jesus deliver us from dominion of darkness? And by does he triumph over the principalities and powers? Does he give us victory over Satan and his kingdom through the cross and resurrection? You better believe it. Yet there's something that he does that you cannot afford to miss. The heart and soul of the gospel. The heart and soul of what's going on at the cross is itself that Jesus himself on that cross becomes the object of the full wrath of God against sinners and he stands in the sinner's place as your substitute. 
It's quiet in here. He's dying on your behalf. It's substitutionary. He's the offerer, but he's also the offering. And he's dying for the sins, not sins abstractly. He's dying for the sins of the people. That's propitiation. Let's think about two things. What's going on in the Garden of Gethsemane? When Jesus is there praying and he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. And he, he, the Bible says he prays it three times and he punctuates every prayer with what words? Nevertheless, thy will be done. Hebrews 10, he comes in the volume of the book that is written to do your will, O God. We'll get there, right? But this is the deal. He's saying this. He Do you think he's shrinking back from the fact that he's going to have physical pain and he's going to have agony and he's going to suffer? As horrific as death by crucifixion is and as excruciatingly painful as it is, Christ is not shrinking back from the nails. He's not shrinking back from a spear. He's not shrinking back from death by asphyxiation. He's shrinking back from the very thought of absorbing in his own pure, undefiled soul, the very white, hot wrath of Almighty God against our sin. That's what he's recalling against. And as he contemplated it and what it would mean to experience the wrath of God as a sinner's substitute, his own soil is recalling. And he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. That's what undergirds Gethsemane. What is it that undergirds his cry of dereliction on the cross? You know what that is? When he cries out in fulfillment of Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When the Lord of glory is suspended between heaven and earth on a cruel Roman cross, the writer of the gospel says that at noon darkness fell over the face of the earth. And let me tell you something. It's like the book of Exodus. This is a darkness that could be felt. It's dark at 12 o'clock. And for three hours there was darkness on the face of the earth. And the Lord of glory, who had never known anything but harmony and devotion and unhindered and unbroken love of the Father, is suspended between heaven and earth, being your propitiation, suspended there as your substitute. God is pouring out all his wrath upon his Son. The hour of judgment reaches its pinnacle. And for three hours there's darkness on the face of the earth. And then Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? It was because while he was making propitiation for our sin, he experienced the hell that you deserved. That's the reality. He experienced the wrath that we deserved. He experienced the judgment that I deserved. And God is pouring out his wrath on his son in your place. That is propitiation. So the writer of Hebrews tells us, He became just like us. Are you listening? Soul, body, emotions, nerves, real human will, tempted like we are. And this is why, come back tonight, he is able to help us. He's fully God. He's fully man. And he's crucified. And he, what does he do? He's the atonement. Are you listening? He's the offerer and the offering. He's the atonement. He is the propitiation. He is the mercy seat. In propitiation, 
sin is seen as Godward. Right? In propitiation, your look must first be Godward, not horizontally. Why is this important? Because we like to point sin in every other direction but away from God. We do a lot of things with sin. We sin a lot. Right? Yet, if sin provokes the wrath of God, then sin must first be a Godward act. Can I give you an example? David. Against you, Lord, only have I sinned. When we look at that, we say, now wait a minute, you seduced Bathsheba, you murdered Uriah, you actually put the soldiers in a difficult place and they died, you sinned against the entire nation. And we immediately think about the horizontal aspects, but David realizes that sin is first Godward. Sin is always against the Lord. Sin is always in the sight of a holy God. Sin is always an affront to a holy God. Sin is always a transgression of the law. Sin is always a violation of righteousness. Have you ever been pulled over by an officer? And the officer says to you something like this. I stopped you and gave you a ticket because you offended me and you broke my heart. Has that ever happened to you? I grabbed this citation book and began to write because you violated everything it means for us to be human beings. Have you ever done that? Has that ever happened to you? No. Why? Because it's not personal. In a sense, you've broken a law against an abstract entity. But that's not so with God. It's personal with Him. He takes it personally. You cheat on your taxes. I knew that would come around, right? We're we're in January, right? Cheat on your taxes, God takes it personally. You're unfaithful to your spouse in whatever way that is summed up, multi-ways. Then it's an affront to God. You have outbursts of anger. What's that? It's an affront to God. You have an addiction, and you're defiling the temple that God made for you. What is that called? God takes it personal. Jesus came to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In our place, think about this. There's a reason for that, because God takes sin personally. Here's the other thing about it. Propitiation is also personal. God takes sin personally, but propitiation is also personal. It is for the sins of the people. Did you all see that in the text? To make propitiation for the sins of The people. That's vitally important. The world turns on prepositions. Of the people. So it's not as if he's he's dying for sin as a propositional thing. It's not an abstraction out there somewhere. He's dying for the sin's possession. Of the people. Please hear me. He did not die for an indistinct group of people. He laid down his life for the ones that the Father had given to him. Hebrews 2, that's what it says. They were given to him. He laid down his life for real people with real names, real sheep that hear his voice and come to him. Your name is written on his heart and it's graven on his hand. Keep this clear in your thinking, all right? I'm trying to land the plane. Keep this clear in your thinking. The wrath of God is always a manifestation of the holiness and justice of God. Therefore, propitiation presupposes the wrath of God 
against sin. John Stott said it way better than I ever could. The wrath of God is his steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism to evil in all its forms and all of its manifestations. Don't think for a moment that wrath is simply God loses his temper, like you do. It's not he loses his patience and flies off the handle. He's not a capricious God like Greek mythology. God's wrath flows out of his holiness. His wrath flows out of his justice. And it's always principled and it's always pure. Sin is a contradiction to the holiness of God, right? So we have desecrated the glory of God. We belittled him. And the wrath that we receive is justified. We contribute nothing to the cross by trying to minimize propitiation. You actually denigrate the personal character of God and the work of Christ when you minimize propitiation. God is not just a cuddly, smiling deity. That's what we often think, right? The only time you will fully appreciate the glory of the rescue, as we started the sermon, is when you fully apprehend the magnitude of the danger and what Christ did for you. Avoiding this concept of propitiation diminishes the glory of glory and grace of Christ's sacrifice. Your sin and mine had provoked God to just anger. Not flying off the handle, but just anger, right? And the Lord of glory bore that wrath in my place. Covered my sin. Sent it away like he sent away the scapegoat in Leviticus 16. He provides propitiation because of his great love. Please don't miss this. The wrathful God is the loving God. Leviticus 17 says, you got to make atonement, but here's the glory. I'm going to provide it for you. <laughs> the same wrathful God is the same God that made propitiation possible. Are y'all listening? Are you getting this? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he that knew no sin became sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be in us. John Stott again says, God in holy wrath against sin needs to be propitiated. God in holy love undertook the duty to be the propitiating, to do the propitiating. And God himself in the person of his son died for the propitiation of our sins. Bring it all together. Thus God took his own loving initiative to appease his own righteous anger against sin. Bearing it himself on his own son when he took the place and died for us. So that big word propitiation is simply means Christ takes away God's anger at us for our sins. When Christ dies, he is perfectly innocent. His death is to bear the guilt and the punishment for our sins, not his own. And when our punishment falls on him, our guilt is taken away. Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Hallelujah. My punishment falls on him. That's what propitiation means. God's justice is satisfied. He loved us enough to put his own son forward to absorb the punishment that we deserve so that he could demonstrate that he was both just and faithful in dealing with sin, but he could also be merciful for a sinner like me. He could also be merciful to you. That's the great gospel. That's the only gospel of the Bible. That is the gospel of the Lord 
Jesus Christ. That's our great salvation. Christ dying in our place, propitiating God, removing his righteous anger from us so that our sins would be covered and sins atoned for. That's the point Hebrews is going to make. Last point. When he does this, it's forever. When he makes propitiation for sins, it is forever. Whereas the priestly order of the Old Testament was perpetual and it was perennial, what Christ has done, and they had to do it over and over, he did once for all, and the effects of it are perpetual and perennial, right? Forever and ever. Jesus comes, offers himself, we're going to see this, up one time as the sacrifice, propitiation for our, propitiation for our sins, and he placates the wrath of God. He removes it. He appeases the wrath. He satisfies holy justice, satisfies the demands of holy law, makes propitiation. Why? Because you could never be obedient, but Jesus was. And in his full obedience, he takes that body to the cross and that obedience the act of obedience of Christ and he dies in your stead and when the father looks at you your, his, his wrath is appeased your sin is covered and it's on the basis of Christ's obedience not your obedience his obedience why because he was perfect and never sinned he, de- he satisfied the demands of holy law he makes propitiation for sin he removes the wrath of God now I tell you it's forever but can God be displeased with his people Well, you better believe it. You're just inside the door of a new year, and I guarantee you, you've displeased him in some form or fashion. But listen, in a judicial way, you can never be under condemnation for your sin again. That's the glory of propitiation for the sins of his people. The impediment of our sin and the obstacle of divine judgment has been forever removed. Why? Because of Christ. That's the glory of the gospel. And you can have absolute confidence this coming year that all of your God-belittling sins and all of your glory of God-desecrating sins have all been wiped away. They've all been paid for. Because if your sin is forgiven and the wrath of Almighty God has been turned away from you, then then the devil himself is disarmed. Are you ready for it? Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And why is that true? Because what the devil wants to hold over you every day of your life is your sin. And the fact that you're sinning against God and you know this is true and you sense it every time you put your head on your pillow and every time you wake up in the morning, you sense this. But if your sins are propitiated and the wrath of God is turned away from you and your sin is covered he has no charge over you he has no control over you and that's why you can say death is swallowed up in victory oh death where is your sting the sting of sin is the law if you die under the demands of the law and not having your sins propitiated you get the just recompense of it which is hell Glory to God for propitiation. The fact that he has disarmed the enemy. And here's the deal. It shows that the only lethal weapon in the artillery of Satan is our own sin. And if that sin is covered by the blood of Jesus, if that sin is forgiven, if the anger of God against us is gone, and in its place is omnipotent grace that's working for your good, 
then we can say, what demon or devil can slay us? Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, victory. Oh, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The body they may kill, but that's all. Right? Instantly we are at home with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 8. Isn't it awesome to know that God has for us now, if you're, if you're in Christ Jesus and he's propitiated your sins, what you have now is God, God's unhindered love, grace, and mercy. You are his pure delight because you, in, you are in Christ and you can call him your merciful and faithful high priest. Now, for the year 2024, I'm telling you that's better than any fantasy sports. You're looking at me kind of funny. It's better than any Fortnite night. It's better than the green arrow going up in the stock market. Am I getting your attention? It's better. I know you don't believe this, some of you, but it's better than the Chiefs. It's better than the Bulldogs. It's better than deer cast that tells us they're going to be on their feet at 9 o'clock in the morning and you need to be in the deer stand. Hear, hear me, folks. All of those things fade away into oblivion when we have this one statement. Jesus Christ bore the wrath of God in my place. My sins are forgiven, and God loves me. I'm telling you, folks, it doesn't get any better. Why? Because it's not. There's nothing better than that. Because when it's all said and done, and you get ready to close your eyes and leave this earth, oh, to be able to contemplate that Jesus Christ has forgiven you. That you're on your way to glory. That the enemy can't hold that. Woo! That's good stuff. By the way, you're all going to get there. Hebrews 9. It's an appointment. It's appointing for every man wants to die. And after that, the judgment. So, we're going to end this service with a song. It's called Before the Throne of God Above. It's going to be our invitation. And here's what I'm asking. You don't, don't unzip your Bibles and zip them up too fast. You know, When I was growing up as a kid, that thing used to drive us crazy. You zip your Bible up, zip, 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 because you had a cover over it, and you was ready to go out the door. What you do with what you heard is what's most important. That you've heard what the Scripture says, and you apply it to life. So I want you to sing this song. And I want you to hang on every word and think about what it is for God to look at his son and pardon you. Think about your name graven on his hand and his heart. Think about what it means. Listen, to be before the throne of God above. If you were today before the throne of God above, can you say, Lord Jesus, you have propitiated my sins and I put all my trust in you for salvation? Have you said that? Are, are you putting your faith in an earthly priest? He has to have his sins atoned for too. Are you listening? Only Jesus was the offerer and the offering. Only he could pay the penalty for our sin. All the law and all the prophets and all the shadows and types of the Old Testament find their fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. Father God, help us as we sing this song and think and reflect and meditate on what you've done for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
Voices, hallelujah. 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 Praise the one, the risen Son of God. The title of the rescue for sinners is Propitiation. I asked the Lord, God. You're the only one that can change a heart. You're the only one that can help people see. 
But my prayer was that you have a better appreciation for what Jesus did for you. I hope you do after looking into what the Word of God says to us. And may we live like that. That everything else in life, it shouldn't be the things that we're living for, nor the things that stop us or the things that hinder us. But we keep our focus on the one who made propitiation for our sins. That's the big thing. Amen. Praise God. Hope you'll come back tonight and we're going to apply this to the one who is fully able to help you with temptation. And I guarantee you, no matter what your age, you need his help. Amen. We all do. God bless you.